Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Hello, Joe. Hello, how are you? I'm alright, how are you? Yep, pretty good, pretty good. Looking forward to talking about shirt numbers with you. <laughs> I suppose whatever works for you. Yes, exactly. So, listen, we released a, a video on the on the TIFO YouTube channel um, today, as you're listening to this, uh, all about shirt numbers and why in different countries, different positions traditionally have different shirt numbers. Now, we know that nowadays uh, a lot of players just pick whatever number they want and the players don't re- the numbers don't really correspond to their positions on the pitch. But there is a, a grand history behind the reason why um, they originally did and why they were originally different. So <clears throat> this is what we're going to to discuss today. How exciting. Before we do that, though, I would like to say that you should check out The Athletic. If you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90, that's the numbers 90, TIFO90, you can get a, wait for it, wait for it, it's a new one, Alex. Can you guess what it is? I'm going to guess that it's a 90-day free trial. It is. Imagine that. You know how many months that is? 90 days? Well, I mean, it depends on how many days there are in those months that's exactly the right answer and i was really hoping you would say three so i could throw that in your face but you threw it in mine first uh those who throw the first stones hmm, suffer the largest consequences hey it's three months that's three months for free just long enough to forget that you aren't paying for it and for it to turn over and for you to start paying for it oh they've done it again not really but listen you get three months to uh to Oh God, who needs more of a free trial than that? I mean, you know, I knew within day one, hey, I'm going to have, I'm going to pay for this for the rest of my life, even though they gave it to me for free. But for you, 90 day free trial is excellent. And we're going to talk about why uh, in the middle of this episode as well, because because this uh, the shirt, shirt numbers um, video that we released uh, half corresponds with something that Michael Cox has been doing on The Athletic, uh, which are fa- very interesting reads um, and go into a lot more depth than our video does. Um, anyway, that's theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90. The number's 90. TIFO90. 90, 90 day free trial. Um, Okay, enough of that. Now for the episode. Right, Alex, uh, shirt numbers are mostly different in defence. Why? Right. So, I mean, from country to country, I should have specified that. Sure, but yes. Um, so the, the basic reason for that is that the original... So numbering came in during the 1930s uh, in the UK. Well, I should say England, really, because the, the FA just governs England. But it, it, it became compulsory in 1939. Prior to that, there were instances of numbering um, that were on and off. It was about the same sort of time that that the evolution from uh, what we would call 235 started to become what we would call WM in England. Now, there are various kind of tactical evolutions that occur in this period of time. Some countries use a WW, some use an MM. I would always recommend reading Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid if you want to get to grips with this stuff. But basically... The 235 was numbered from right to left, back to front, basically. So the right uh, the right back was two, the left back was three, then you went across the half backs, four, five, six, and so on. 
as that formation changed, as the 235 changed and initially became the WM, um, so you have three backs, then two halfbacks, and then forwards, the position that dropped back to make that third line or that third man in defence was different from country to country. So in England, for example, <clears throat> the it was the number five that dropped back. And part of the reason for that was in Herbert Chapman's original WM. That five position was sort of almost like a quarterback uh, in the sense that they had a kind of... Um, uh, as well as a defensive position, they also were were the person who would initiate counterattacks with long range passing. They would occasionally bring the ball forwards, and it felt more natural for that to be the five. And so you were left then with the the numbering in the WM being two five three across the back. Different countries did it differently. So in some instances, for example, in Argentina, the outside right half dropped back into the right back space which is kind of logical in Uruguay it was even more logical because the left half back went left the right half back went right and so the numbering you would see would be four two three six if you're reading from right to left so that the basic answer is because different countries dropped a different player into the defensive line to make that defensive line Right. Okay. Um, before we go any further on shirt numbers, I just want to take this opportunity to ask you about the WM because that doesn't come up very often. Uh, what was the W? I mean, I know you just explained the, the 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 formation there, but why did it work so well? And why did it dominate football for eons? Well, it. So part of the reason that it evolved was a, as as a response to a change in the offside law. Um, so there were there were now um, fewer players allowed between. The, uh, the goal and the, the player in possession when the ball was, or sorry, the player who was receiving possession. Um, what that meant was that teams needed to have a bit more defensive solidity, otherwise they could quite easily be caught out. Bearing in mind with the 2-3-5, you had effectively, unless the halfbacks were dropping back considerably, you could have five players pretty much running at two fullbacks. Uh, and a goalkeeper. So in order to compensate for that, and, and the what, what were called the inside players, the inside right, the inside left, so eight and ten, they would drop back and they became more of a kind of central midfielder, as, as we would see, but with, say, someone like a Kevin De Bruyne or a David Silva, who also gets forward. Um, it was basically about balancing that up and, and giving additional cover. But because Chapman didn't just want to be defensive that centre-half position which is why in England we call centre-back centre-half sometimes because that's what he was a number five there would also be that kind of playmaking um, capacity there so so long-range pass or or carrying the ball forwards kind of a bit like a sweeper um, and it's it, it, it one of the reasons that formation changes work is partly because no one else has done them yet so you know, if you start to make changes um, that address particular problems uh, that you're finding because the opposition are doing certain things, if you're the first person to make that change, you kind of catch everyone on the hop. 
Do you know and what you- my favourite change was? Having read Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid, my favourite change, uh, I guess a little bit before this, was when they started passing the ball. <laughs> I really loved the passage in his, but it's really near the beginning if anyone wants to pick up a copy and, and read it. There's a bit where he talks about uh, how players didn't really pass the ball. When they picked it up, they would run with it until they got tackled. And yeah. the person who tackled them would then run with it until they got tackled. So I just thought of that because you were describing you know, five forwards running at two uh, mm. Defenders, and in the modern game, that's carnage and a definite goal. In the in the olden days game, the olden times game, that's one player running against two defenders, and it, well, in some in some cases, um, I just love the idea that they haven't worked that out yet. Well, they they, it is very interesting. So they talk about, and again, this is this is all from Wilson stuff. Um, the idea of backing up, which was running next to a player who was head down and dribbling on the off chance that the ball kind of ricocheted out of a tackle and you might gather it. But it wasn't It wasn't because that player would then kind of draw the man in and then chip it sideways. And it was, it was a very, very distinct difference between the way football was played in Scotland, where players did pass the ball, and yeah, in England, yeah. where they just... They just ran. <laughs> so so. They got, I mean, the first time they played, they, uh, England got absolutely hammered, didn't they? When they first played Scotland. Yeah, well, they. I think Scotland were fielding a, a, a effectively like a representational team from one particular club. And I want to say Queen of the South, but that's probably wrong. Right. Um, because I can't remember. But yes, it, it was effectively that. And they... And England were, you know, much bigger. They were about a stone heavier. They were, it, it kind of almost, if you if you look at the report of it and the way that people were judging the outcome ahead of time based on fitness, speed and strength, it reads like, uh, like a rugby team playing another rugby team where it's like, you know, the, the little quick guys who could actually string passes together surprisingly beat the big heavy ones. Right, yeah, um, yeah. It, oh, it's quite a weird way to look at football. But, you know, mm. the, the things have evolved so much uh, in the, you know, 150 years we're talking about. Well, let's follow that trajectory um, from the WM to four at the back. Uh, that transition obviously took a while and it happened at different times in different places. And as you describe, in different ways in different places. Was there anywhere that it happened almost immediately? Well, again, according to Wilson in... Uh, and I think Michael Cox makes this point in in his series as well. In in Uruguay, it was pretty much a seamless transition from a two three five to a back four. Yeah. Um, and does that lot- mean a four four two, or does that just mean a back four? Well, generally speaking, in South America, what happened was that it, it kind of went to a four two four. Um, so, so those two inside players, um, one of them dropped back and there was obviously still a halfback left there, which in South America is always a five. Um, and then you would have, they would be alongside an eight who was a kind of shuttley player. The, the front line of the four in, in South American football, particularly in Brazilian football, which is really where the four, two, four originated, and it is worth noting that one of those central defenders would still be encouraged to step forwards um, and to kind of almost bulk out the midfield in transition. So it wasn't a pure, like, rigid back four. Um, but also in that position, the 10 would kind of hang back. So you you almost had this staggered effect where one of the centre-backs would push forwards a little bit, 
kind of alongside the five, but not quite. Then there'd be an eight slightly ahead of them. Then slightly ahead of them would be a 10. And then you'd have three attackers, you know, two two wide players and a pure centre forward. So it's not like this was a sudden thing where, <clears throat> you know, overnight there was a back four and it was a rigid back four in the sort of George Graham Arsenal style. It, it was It was more fluid and more evolutionary than that. And tactics are kind of driven by two things. So the, the first is a manager who has the the imagination uh, and and the wherewithal to respond to a kind of a prevailing way of playing football and think, oh, well, if I tweak this, if I did something different, maybe that would surprise people. Um, look at Antonio Conte using a back three in the Premier League. I mean, that, that was suddenly, oh, what is this? We don't know what to do with it. The other thing is that sometimes... Uh, teams will adapt because they have a particular player who does a particular thing extremely well. Um, so for example, the, the, the idea of uh, a striker, a, a number nine dropping back and playing in the half space, which is sort of, you know, ultimately come to be known as a false nine. Where I think you of s- Pirlo when you say that. Though. <clears throat> Pirlo? I think of Pirlo when you say that as having him playing deeper in the creative role uh, oh yes, to the, give him more space, but like, yeah. and then the team builds around him. Yes, so that that's definitely the case, team by team. Um, but in terms of kind of broader innovations that then start to manifest more widely, with with Austria in the nineteen thirties uh, and and a player called uh, Matthias Sindelar, and then Hungary in the nineteen fifties with uh, Nandor Hidakuti, you 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 see players who their natural game almost forces a shift that then transitions more widely and people start to understand that maybe playing an attacking midfielder after half in the half space off a striker is a good idea or maybe formations don't need to be quite as fixed. I mean, the, the Pirlo thing is a really good example of of how individual teams can change to, to maximise the benefit but but Pirlo started life as as a kind of trequartista he started playing as a 10 in the hole behind strikers and 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 he just wasn't very fast so they they kind of dropped him back and protected him in that way but it's yeah I mean this this is why tactics is so interesting um is because these things they all sort of relate to one another so if you then have a player who's regularly doing that you have to think about you know do do I do I have a player who steps forward to mark them? Do I have a player who drops back? And you know, when when England played that Hungary side, there were confusions about the numbers that the Hungarians were wearing. But again, it caused the English <clears throat> defenders to think, do I step forwards and effectively make myself a midfielder to follow this guy? Or do I hold my position in the back line, in which case he's in lots of space? And it, 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 it forces... It forces coaches to then think and solve those problems um, further down the line, and that's how you get the evolution of tactics. Mm. So, what are some other modern examples of of a, of a player who plays a slightly unusual role that the team is then built around? I mean, th- someone comes to mind for me. I don't know whether the second part of that question fits with Thomas Muller. Uh, I'm not sure whether Bayern ever really built around him, but they definitely found a way to facilitate his talents that weren't immediately obvious and didn't necessarily fit in naturally to, uh, to to their football style. Yeah, I mean, Muller's a really weird example, isn't he? Because he's somebody who has, 
you know he's played on effectively kind of like a right wing position he's played in the in the hole behind one striker behind two he's played as a striker <clears throat> and he has a set of attributes um to do with movement finding space um also he, you know he's a very intelligent presser of the ball he's he's a he's a very disciplined and and tactically smart player and there you kind of look at Bayern as thinking yeah how do we fit this guy in i think i think he's almost too odd to have that idea of something being built around him but but there's no question at all that successive Bayern coaches will have thought about how do we get the best out of Müller in terms of where he fits into the side and where he fits with other players because he's not the sort of person that you want to leave out because his goal scoring record is excellent he's incredibly hard working he's you know the, and it it does these are these are the, the the tricky questions that that coaches have to answer and you know where where does thomas muller fit would be would be a good one and and that you know that obviously makes the the, the selection uh decisions that then have to be made in terms of so if you go back to pirlo for example playing two very, very workmanlike midfielders. I mean, the, the two obvious examples are Ambrosini and Gattuso. Playing them kind of alongside and ahead of Pirlo in order to ensure that he didn't have to do any of that work, that he didn't have to really tackle people or cover lots of distance. You know, again, so it's not it's not just necessarily the tactical system. It Then you might have more talented footballers who don't get played because they don't fit in with what everybody else is trying to do. Which is um, a fascinating um, uh, topic of discussion. And I, and I think there are plenty of players that can that can fit into that mould. I mean, I th- you know, someone who comes to mind immediately is Mesut Ozil. Um, and also I, I was reading uh, Adam Crafton's piece on The Athletic this morning. It's all about data science. And uh, he references a time when Memphis Depay was at Manchester United. Uh, he was struggling under Jose Mourinho, not playing any games. And this is just before he moved to Lyon. And his agent... Um, contacted um, a data science team to provide, uh, well, I guess, some assistance in terms of uh, locating or isolating a good transfer for him. Um, And they asked him a lot of questions about how he wanted to play. One of the things that he said was that he wanted the freedom to play um, and that he didn't, you know, like, essentially he struggled with the defensive duties that were being asked of him at Manchester United and he was looking for somewhere where that wasn't going to be the case. Leon was top of the list and eventually he moved there and I think it's a, it's a very interesting story but it strikes me that there are probably quite a few players who in certain teams will be incredible and could be considered the best player, you know, some of the best players in the world. Pirlo is a perfect example of that. If you stuck Pirlo at num- number 10 forever and expected him to be the same player, you know, without without the team around him doing that, that obviously wouldn't be the case. And I think Meza Ozil, you know, is a, is a really good example of... I guess someone who is a classic number 10 who doesn't any longer play in a game or in a, in a country that, that prizes the classic number 10. Well, that's, I mean, the 10 is the role where it's most evident. I think that these, that these changes occur. Um, And I know that we, you know, on, on the list of ideas that we've got for other things to address, you know, that what, what happens with 10s and why do they go in and out of fashion is a really interesting topic. And, if you look at, say, you look at the way that the Argentine national side uh, built itself around Maradona, for example, playing in the ten role, um, 
effectively all 11 players out uh, all sorry all nine outfield players were there to fulfill a function for Maradona and you do sometimes get the impression that that the most creative players and this is not by any stretch of the imagination to say that creative players are otherwise lazy or don't play for the team or or what have you but you know they they need to be able to do the thing that they're really good at and it's quite unusual to find a, a 10 who is both extremely competent in an attacking sense, but is able to do the defensive work and is able to, without... Wayne Rooney. Well, actually, interestingly, I've just, um, you know, for another TIFO Football Encyclopedia video, I've been looking at uh, at Jose Mourinho's Inter Milan, and, and Wesley Schneider is a really good example of somebody who could do that and could be incredibly disciplined uh, in a defensive sense and fulfill his duties superbly while also being a really, really good creative midfielder. So Do you remember it, it the, the heady have... days of uh, Schneider to United? <clears throat> that that transfer rumour rumbling on I for at least a hundred yes. years. Yes, Which always was... struck me as odd. I mean, you bring that up after I mentioned Wayne Rooney. Always struck me as odd that that would be something that that club would be interested in, given that they had Wayne Rooney, who does the same thing. How do you play those two players in the same team? Maybe that's a good TIFO video revisiting yeah. what could have been how would Schneider and Rudy have possibly fit in the same team maybe they would have maybe, maybe they would have I mean there's two ways immediately spring to mind but maybe you just want me to do the script instead <laughs> yeah. um, but it is no it is interesting and there does often seem to be when you look at teams rather than sort of looking at tactics as a whole but if if you look at the creation of teams and their tactics individually the tension very often seems to exist between we've got a Meza Ozil or a Lionel Messi or a Rick Helme or whoever. Um, how do we fit that player into our team and allow them to be as good as they can be at the thing that they excel at and cover off everything else? Um, and, and the inherent tension between giving a team enough balance to be able to defend successfully, but also to facilitate the attacking brilliance of that kind of playmaker. Um, and and as you know, as football has become <clears throat> more athletic, as there's been a, a greater degree of pressing, as teams have uh, worked on you know being able to transition from incredible compactness to incredible openness. There are certain players who have kind of struggled to adapt to that in quite the same way. Um, And playmaking, the ability to create, doesn't really reside in one player in one kind of area of the pitch. Uh, Being able to pull the strings and do all this stuff in, in the way that it kind of did for a period. And it's odd because prior to that period, that wasn't the case either. You know, again, it's sort of... It might be a generational thing. There might just be a number of players that come out at a similar kind of time um, and and they need to be catered for. There's there's just something that happens in, in the water where you get a run of amazing number 10s. And, and I think that's true. And I, actually, before we move on, on a broader point, I, I would like to ask you a question now. Is this because of my age and my uh, poor perception or... 
were footballers better in the 2000s than they are now? Were there not more better footballers? Is that insane of me to think? Because I do think that. I think maybe it's just my, my sort of skewed perception on what makes a good footballer. You mentioned Wesley Schneider, uh, uh, you know, Wayne Rooney, even people like Robin Van Persie at Arsenal and uh, Thierry Henry. Incredible players, game-changing players. Uh, and they had a, a bit of everything about their game. I feel like people are very, uh, sorry, players are very specialised now and that suits the game today and that makes sense and, you know, t- maybe teams are better, but I just feel like, particularly thinking of that golden era England team that didn't ever, you know, win anything, were, were they were they not better, Alex? I, I, I mean, it's really hard to tell, isn't it? I think... I think what's interesting is that there were Stephen Gerrard, particularly <laughs> Paul Scholes, Frank Partic- Lampard. Go on. Well, Lamp. I mean, Lampard is yeah. Lampard's one of the best midfielders England's ever produced, isn't he? He's just an astonishingly good player, and and in some weird way doesn't necessarily get mentioned in the same breath as some of the others. Um, and I'm not saying that because I'm a Chelsea fan, because I'm not. Um, the, I think, I think when you had, when you had teams basically all playing four four two, um, the, the, the creative and exciting element was usually out wide and sometimes with the smaller of the two strikers who would drop off and play in the hole a little bit. David Beckham, um, Michael Owen. Um, well, no, <laughs> I mean, but yes. Okay. Um, as as that changed and you started to have things like a midfield diamond or a christmas tree formation or or ways of ways of encouraging uh, that creative 10 player who could do certain things that no one else could that did kind of coincide with this period to a degree i mean it sort of started in the mid 90s and then carried on for about 10 years and there's there's a you know there's there's a definite thing of certain kinds of players i don't want to say they're better or worse but there's a certain type of player who in a certain kind of formation catches the eye a lot more than another type of player in another kind of formation you know it's a lot harder to very fondly remember a right back in a 442 and they might have been incredible i mean okay dennis irwin for example as a left back in Man United was one of the most consistently brilliant players the Premier League's ever seen, right? But when you think of great Man United players, you don't necessarily think of Dennis Irwin. You know, there are there are other people who will spring to mind and many of them will be creative players. And that's just an inherent bias that a lot of people have when they're watching football. And so when you have a number of really talented players and you have formational changes that mean that there are systems that are built around those players and highlight their abilities. And it's before everybody else has kind of thought about how to adapt to that. You do get these little golden periods where all of a sudden you think, goodness me, like Baggio. Wow. But, but it's, it's partly, um, you know, I think for example, we might be, if you look at um, the use of Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson at, at Liverpool, maybe we're sort of in the the high point of the age of the fullback. You know, when you look at how much money Man City spent on the fullbacks they've got, when you look at the con- the, the continuing importance of people like Marcelo um, at Real Madrid uh, or Philip Alaba Lam's at Bayern Munich, 
Yeah, yeah, Philip Lahm was a different kind of player, but Joshua Kimmich definitely is in that mould. And you wonder whether, you know, what 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 is going to be... People sometimes contact us and say, you know, what, what do you think will be the next tactical shift? And I think the next tactical shift could be how do we negate the attacking capabilities of fullbacks by almost playing... You know, a lot of fullbacks used to be wingers and you kind of wonder whether maybe the next thing is that you do you do a sort of Christian Chivo in that 2010 Inter game. You, you play a fullback as a midfielder and you almost play like a winger type fullback as your fullback and, and you're, the, the, the attacking order of the team is slightly skewed because of what you're trying to achieve with that. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, that's, yeah. But I think, I think we're in the age of the fullback. Well, we were talking about tens before, um, and I would like to uh, direct us now to uh, a Michael Cox article. I mean, a series of articles, uh, uh, iconic shirt numbers on The Athletic. Um, I really enjoyed the number 10 one particularly. Uh, I know we were talking about Maradona before, and there's a great quote in that uh, article where he says that Raquel May was uh, considered almost more of an of a Argentinian 10 than uh, Maradona was because uh, he had... Um, some, I suppose, difficulties playing in Europe, you know, and that sort of would be considered the, the traditional Argentinian 10. I love the idea that even as, uh, even in country specific, um, different places, different numbers have different expectations and different characteristics. And the Argentinian 10 is a, is a particularly interesting one to me. Mm, yeah, definitely. No, it's, it's a great article. And um, as you say, there's a whole series of these articles. And what's really nice is that they, they explain things about those positions, but they also highlight particular players who excelled while wearing those shirt numbers. Um, and it's it's really worth a read. But it it's interesting with someone like Raquel May because obviously at Villarreal he 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 did you know he was an exceptional player. But there is that thing about, and you sometimes see it with uh, with Brazilian tens as well, where they they just somehow don't quite adapt to the the physicality of of European football, which is an odd thing because actually. South American football, they they kick lumps out of each other. So it's not that kind of physicality. It's more it's more the pace. It's more the ability to find that little bit of room and time to do something different and out of the ordinary. Um, but but when Raquel May was on song, he was an absolutely beautiful player to watch. Oh, for sure. Uh, and and I think you know that <clears throat> he 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 draws the uh, Cox draws the um, the contrast with Maradona and Messi who had that kind of low center of gravity that uh, kind of aggressive dribbling and and the speed to be able to do that whereas Raquel May was more upright more languid more kind of almost tried to exist within his own little bubble where he was operating at a slightly slower speed than everyone else mm. Um, mm. but uh, maybe yeah. a bit of a pillow well kind of yeah and and you wonder whether again if if um if, if footballing fashions had evolved differently, and I, and I don't know which team Raquel May came from in, in Argentina, but, um, you know, whether players like that might have ended up playing a bit deeper. I mean, the, the Argentinian five is, to me, is a really fascinating position because you do have some fives like Fernando Redondo or Fernando Gago, um, even if you're being kind, someone like Lucas Billia, who are... They are kind of a bit like a Pirlo, 
but they're also a bit like a Gattuso and they're not quite one thing. They're not quite the other. I mean, some, some Argentinian fives are just pure destroyers and that they're, they're great, but yes, you do, you do have little shifts. I guess someone like Raquel may just wasn't defensively capable. It was, it's probably more the way they think about it is defense first. And if they happen to be able to pass the ball really nicely, then that's all to the good. I just love the idea that, uh, you know, culture contributes to national characteristics that are as refined and as are and um, as sort of, uh, what's the right word? Like, what what is the word when it's set in, uh, you know, the cultural uh, inherent. Yeah, it's yeah. inherent to, 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 to that specific um, well, this, location. This is, I find that fascinating. You know, the, 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 if you read, again, to, to cite Jonathan Wilson, but this time Angels with Dirty Faces, um, which is his history of Argentinian football, the character of the, I'm, I don't know if it's Peeb or Peebe, I'm not sure if, how you pronounce it, but this sort of um, almost like a street urchin figure um, who is tricky and charismatic and a little bit naughty, but fundamentally not a bad human being. I'm really good um, at football. And and it then yes, it gets transferred into the idea of 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 a Maradona. I mean Maradona is like the classic Pibe or Peeb, um, because he has these but it but it's a, it's kind of like a like a folk figure almost, um, and becomes incredibly important to that identity. And I think if you looked maybe at, at English football, it would be your Have we got of, a Pibe? Well, Robin no, Hood. Uh, oh, in that sense. Well it's yeah. I mean, I guess, and yes, probably, but but there, I I don't think there's, I don't think there's a figure that translates as easily. But I I do think that the idea of a, a you know, a, a classic brave central defender, yeah, yeah. you know, someone like a, a Terry Butcher with his uh, head all bandaged up, that kind of plays into an idea that the English have of of being you know, stout and resolute and maybe not, you know, very fussy, but prepared to put themselves on the line for things. And that's that's why those sorts of players are revered in a way that, you know, maybe other kinds of players aren't. Yeah. Well, anyway, if you want to read Michael Cox's piece, uh, you can do so by uh, triggering your 90-day free trial. That's theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90, the number's 9-0. For a 90-day free trial, you could read that. In 90 days, you could read all of Michael Cox's work and more. Uh, I would highly encourage you do so. Why not? It's free for 90 days. Uh, right. Uh, the last question I've got for you, really, Alex, is um, the one I'm most interested in hearing your answer for. Uh, it, you know, it's about sort of the global dominance of some of those domestic number uses. So we were just talking about uh, the Argentinian 10, for example, and how that might have... Uh, imprinted on the wider world. The one I'm interested in is the European six as a defensive midfielder, or the Zexer, as you call it in in the script in Germany. Um, because, you know, you also mentioned that in, in, in England, at least, that was traditionally the four role. And I guess that's why, you know, Steven Gerrard wore that number, for example. But we definitely do not call it the four. Now we call it the six, right? That has totally infiltrated uh, English football culture and, you know, for the better, as far as I'm concerned. But, um, why is that? Is that just because there were a number of um, you know popular and and, uh, and and talented European defensive midfielder sixes, and that's just taken taken hold, or is it because there were more European players playing in, in the Premier League, for example? What do you think? I think it probably is uh, that. I, I think also um, 
there seems to be more of a uh, a tie that certain countries have to certain numbers. Um, so, you know, we talked about Argentina prizing the 10 and the 5 particularly. And I think in in German football particularly, that the kind of really no-nonsense defensive midfielder, the sort of the Diddy Harmon or someone, um, is is a kind of player that is venerated there because, again, they embody certain qualities that maybe are particularly highly prized. You know, they're extremely hardworking. They're extremely diligent. They sacrifice themselves for the team. Um, and so for them, the idea of a six is it's not just a shirt number. It embodies certain things that, you know, when, when Germany have won World Cups, they obviously they've had extremely talented attacking players. But there's always been that sense of, you know, when, when West Germany beat Holland, for example, in, in 74, it's that, you know, it's the hardworking Germans, you know, they're, they're diligent, they're focused, they've got a team ethic. And if there's a player who embodies that more than any other player, it is that kind of defensive midfielder. So I think they get, so yeah, I, d- I don't want to say that they, that those, those shirt numbers take on a kind of mythic quality, because I think that's overstating it. But I think that having a shorthand for a fairly defined role that is also a role that that carries respect and is prized is something that you get. And then that comes across and those sorts of players do, you know, when the Premier League really started to open itself up to, um, to foreign players, a lot of them were in that kind of mold to start with. We weren't generally speaking going out uh, and buying super creative players to come over. We were buying, you know, Scandinavian center backs and German defensive midfielders. Um, and there's there's some good stuff in in Michael Cox's book Zonal Marking about this, and and also the mixer actually. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but then you know in England we've got we've got the Makaleli role, which is still kind of referred to, although I I sort of feel like that's dying out slightly. Um, hey, not if Tifa has anything to do with it. Well, sure, um, but also the proliferation of tactical writing online. You know, a lot of the good tactical writers um, are publishing in english but they aren't necessarily english writers um sure so yeah. they're they're importing terminology that they're comfortable with and that they use so that, you know these things you proliferate. Know, like what i liked as well most from the script was the idea that um although you can choose whatever number you want and although the squad squad numbering has completely changed that one to eleven thing so the traditional numbers and traditional positions aren't, aren't really relevant anymore that players are still drawn to it I like the idea that that kind of tells you something about a player as well. Not necessarily what they're like on the pitch, but how they see themselves. If, uh, you know, if uh, Memphis Depay joins uh, Manchester United and wants to be the number seven, that, you know, that says something about Depay, either that he's asking for that or that he's willing to take on the role. Similarly, I remember when Antonio Valencia gave it back and took back 25 because the pressure of the number seven was too much for him. That, that tells you something about him as well. So I like the idea that although it's sort of irrelevant, it does still give us, uh, you know, possibly some, some information or some insight into a player's character or temperament or view of themselves. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a resonance there. And I think it, I think there are two versions of that. I think one is the club version. So obviously at Manchester United, the number seven is a thing. Um, which carries and commercial value, I suppose. Carries huge commercial value, huge weight of expectation, um, and all the rest of it. And and that's largely, um, I'd say, Best and Cantona are the two major reasons for that. 
and then you have this nationality one, you know, the, the Argentine 10, the Brazilian 10, the German 6. Again, it's it's like a statement of of intent. It's this is the kind of player that I want to be. And, and I think usually it implies assuming a kind of responsibility. You know, I, I want, you know, if you're making yourself a Brazilian 10, you're saying I'm going to be the one who makes things happen. Um, if if I'm a Manchester United number seven, I'm the one who'll produce the moment of magic when nobody else can. And that's, yeah, yeah that does speak to a player's character, I think. Mm, very interesting. Anyway, that's the end of the podcast now. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Joe. And, uh, well, that was very, I've never heard you that excited. Um, <laughs> that, or animated, I should say. Um that's the end. Uh, next week, we will be back with uh, something else, which is similar to that. In fact, we've got two now. We've got two now. Two now. Don't know what, mm. don't know what either of them are, because mm. we've sort of said that we'll do two. Don't know what they are. So, you know, there'll be two, but uh, much in the same way that there's been one before. So, you know, just expect twice as much of what you've already had and nothing more, please. Just just that. Yeah? Is that exciting? Oh, uh, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Right, uh, thanks. See you later. Au revoir.